Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. you have your Bibles tonight, we'll be in uh, Revelation 11. I guess you can say we're now at about the halfway point. It's 22 chapters and we've made it to chapter 11, so we're close. I've read a lot, I've studied a lot, and um, I ch- kind of chuckled after about the 10th commentary, Darren. It said, this is perhaps the most difficult chapter in Revelation to interpret. I said, no kidding. <laughs> and so um, after wrestling with it, I still got more questions and answers, but I want to, I want to teach in such a way tonight that uh, I want us to focus on the prophecies and I want us to focus on what they teach us because the divergence of opinions, the different interpretations are amazing. I can share with you a little bit of that. Uh, you can draw your own conclusions on the matter. Um, if you're like me, sometimes you're still in the cooker. It's still stewing, and you're still thinking about it, and kind of lean one way, maybe the other, and you're non-committal. And sometimes it's like that. That's one of these, I suppose. But we're going to talk about the two witnesses that are mentioned in Revelation uh, 11. And I want you to realize that in this passage, we will see four things that we should know as a witness of Jesus Christ. So it's definitely going to be uh, practical. Um, Number one is God's plan moves forward despite opposition. Look, if you will, in Revelation 11, 2. Then I was given a measuring reed like a rod. Now, this is John talking. It says, I was given a measuring reed like a rod, and uh, with these words, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there, but exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, um, this will remind you, if you're familiar with Old Testament, it will remind you of when God told Ezekiel to measure the temple in Ezekiel 40 through, I think, 48. It's a big, long section. And then, of course, there's a uh, another one. I believe it's Jeremiah, but I didn't write that down. I should have. Um, but um, obviously, uh, this this is being measured. And um, what does that mean? Well, again, it depends on who you read and what you find. But notice you're measuring the temple and the altar, and you're counting the worshipers, but you're excluding the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it. It's been given to the nations, or another way of saying that is the Gentiles, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now... We know the temple is in Jerusalem. We know that the holy city is Jerusalem. Matter of fact, anytime you read in the Bible and it says the holy city, it's referring to Jerusalem. And so that seems to be the, um, the background, the, the location of what is going on here. And so three issues immediately confront us. What is the temple? 
what is the holy city and how do we understand 42 months? Uh, well, it appears that the temple here, some believe it's literal, some believe it's symbolic. Um, those that think it's symbolic, they say, well, we are the temple. And in the New Testament, we're taught that. Uh, but it looks like it could be more literal here. What is the holy city? That's Jerusalem. And how do we understand 42 months? You know, I when you study numbers in the Bible, it's very interesting, particularly when you study them in, in, uh, in prophecy. Uh, what you will find in Revelation, that you've got three units of time that it can all be summarized by saying three and a half, okay? Daniel talked about things happening in the last days, and it would be a time, times, and half a time. You add that up, that's three and a half. Uh, here we have got 42 months, and 42 months is three and a half years. And then uh, here in a minute, the next verse, verse 3, you're going to read 1,260 days. And if you count off 30-day months, guess how many 1,260 days it's going to be? Three and a half years. Um, one thing I have noticed that's peculiar about this three and a half pattern is that it seems to suggest that it's a time of opposition and persecution, okay? Uh, and that's, that's all I'll say about that, but those are issues that uh, come up. What I want you to see here is that just like between the sixth and the seventh seal earlier in Revelation, uh, the believers were sealed so that they would be, you know, distinguish the righteous from the wicked, in the same way, here we are between the sixth and seventh trumpet, and there is a measurement going on of those that are faithful to Him. They're in the temple. Uh, they're at the altar. They worship Him. They're not those outside the courtyard. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Um, the second thing I want you to see that we should know as a witness of Jesus uh, Christ not only that God's plan moves forward despite opposition, but we have God's promise to complete the mission. Now it gets real interesting. It says here in, in verse 3, I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, Fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with ever plague whenever they want. Now, there is a whole lot here again. And usually the, the, the most asked question is, who are these two witnesses? Um, I can tell you what the theories are. I don't really know, and I don't want to be dogmatic about it because it doesn't explicitly say. What it does, it gives you a description, and it leads you down a trail, and uh, people look at this, and they come away with two different things. We'll look at that. So we know we have two witnesses. To be consistent, they're like two olive trees and two lampstands, and then I believe they're called um, 
two, uh, two prophets at some point. So you've got two, 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 two. So what does this mean? Well, notice the two olive trees and the two lampstands in verse 4 that stand before the Lord of the earth. That is a direct link to Zechariah. Zechariah is one of those minor, obscure prophets at the back of your Old Testament. In Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1, it reads, The angel who was speaking with me then returned and roused me as one awakened out of sleep, and he asked me, What do you see? And I replied, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top. And the lampstand also has seven lamps at the top with seven spouts for each of the lamps. And there are also two olive trees beside it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And then I asked the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my Lord? And he said, Don't you know what they are? Uh, No, my Lord. So he answered me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. And then if you skip on down in Revelation, excuse me, in Zechariah 4, if you skip down from verse 6 to verse 11, uh, then you see the rest of the conversation. I asked him, What are the two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And I questioned him further, What are the two streams of the olive trees from which the golden oil is pouring through the two golden conduits? And then he inquired of me, Do you, Don't you know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. He said, These are the two anointed ones, watch this, who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, what I just read there in Zechariah 4.14, what does it say in Revelation 11.4? These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Definitely, you got to fit here. Now, does that help us anymore? Yes and no. <laughs> um, these two witnesses are compared to two olive trees and two lampstands. And that takes us back to uh, Zechariah 4. In Zechariah 4, uh, many people who have studied this believe that the two olive trees that he's referring to in Zechariah are Zerubbabel, the king, uh, or the priest, excuse me, or yeah, the king, Zerubbabel the king, and Joshua the high priest. Okay, a king and a priest. In Revelation 1, verse 6, we're told that Christ has made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we know in Revelation that we, in the kingdom of God, are kings and priests. And so just to give you the fork in the road, some people look at this passage, and if they read it literally, they're going to say there are two witnesses. Now, who are they? And as they keep reading they come to a conclusion as to who they are, and I'll I'll get to that in a minute. Some read this symbolically, and they go, well, these two witnesses are like two olive trees, and then they go to Zechariah, and they read what the olive trees are, okay? And the olive trees are a king and a priest, and then Revelation tells us that we are a king and a priest. We also know know that they are two um, lampstands, and based on what we've already learned in Revelation, what are lampstands? They are churches. The seven lampstands that Christ is walking around in Revelation 1, and the lampstands are churches. And so there are some that look at these two witnesses, and they say they represent the church. 
And you might say, well, why two? Because according to the law in Deuteronomy, everything has to be established in the law by what? Two or three witnesses, okay? And what it's suggesting here is that before the seventh trumpet is blown, which signals the end, okay? And we'll get to that next time, and I can't wait to get to that. Uh, But before the seventh trumpet blows, and we find out that the mystery of God is complete, and the kingdom becomes that of the Lord and His Christ, uh, the end. Before that, God is sending these two witnesses into the world, and that's kind of like a judicial notice that, hey, you're going to be held accountable for what you've done. Let me give you an illustration of it. When Jesus sent out the 70, do you remember that in the Gospels? Jesus sent out the 70. He sent them out by what? Two by two, right? He sent them out two by two. Ultimately, they came back to him, and he made a curious statement. He said that it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day than for all of them. Why? Because all of these towns that the disciples went to, they went two by two. Let everything be established by two or three witnesses, and so they'll be held more accountable uh, because they were, were warned. That's an interesting thought. Just wanted to throw it out there because it's probably the least familiar option it was to me as I began to really dig into this. And it's hard to be too dogmatic either way because each view goes to Scripture, tries to interpret Scripture with Scripture, and say, well, it could be this, here's why. Then you read the other, well, it could be this, here's why. And they both have some good points, and they both have some weak links, and you're like, just going to throw it out there. That's where, where it is. Now, if you take a more literal view, you're going to look at the olive trees and the lampstands, and you're going to say, well, oil has to light the lamps. Oil comes from olive trees, and so it shows that what he said in uh, Zechariah 4, where he said, not by strength nor by might, but my my spirit, says the Lord of armies, then what, what some would say is the olive trees and the lampstands standing before the Lord of the earth just demonstrate that these two witnesses are going to be used by God, and it's not their power. It's the Spirit of God that's going to be working through them. Then you keep reading And they do some amazing things, these two witnesses. I mean, if people try to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths. Now, all of a sudden, I'm picturing two people that have dragon power. They have a superpower, right? (sighs) Right? I mean, and then you go, is that literal? I mean, if you Google the images on this, the two witnesses with flames coming out of their mouth, it's an interesting. You'll see some great pictures on the Internet where people have drawn this, and it's like, (sighs) Uh, I don't know. Um, some, some tend to take a different approach um, and they will bring up Jeremiah 5.14 uh, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 5.14 says this is what the Lord of Armies says because you've spoken this word I'm going to make my words become fire in your mouth and these people are the wood and the fire will consume them so Jeremiah who was a prophet to the nations God you know, God said, the, the word that I'm going to put in your mouth is going to be like fire. And it's going to consume people when you speak it. And so there's definitely a symbolic uh, 
element there. How literal is it? I'm not sure. But again, uh, as I was wrestling, I've wrestled with this since last Wednesday night, to be honest with you. And uh, what has what has really uh, made me wrestle so much with this is there's a lot of symbolism in this passage, but I believe there's a lot of literalism in this passage. And I don't feel comfortable going completely symbolic, and I don't feel comfortable going completely literal. So I'm sitting here going, yeah, you know, it's a lot going on here. Um, it goes on and says, uh, they have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. Now, who does that remind you of? Come on, who prayed for three and a half years it wouldn't rain? I know you know it. Elijah, there you go. You're nodding your head. That's good. So see, that reminds you of Elijah. And then it goes on, it says, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. Who does that remind you of? Moses, right. Now, some people believe that these two witnesses are going to be Moses and uh, Elijah. And I see some good points with that view. I see some questions with that view. Now, here's some good points. First of all, when I first think of it, I'm like, you know, I don't like anything that makes people think of reincarnation because I don't think that reincarnation is biblical, okay? I don't believe that you you die and then reappear in another life as somebody else or something else. I just don't believe reincarnation is biblical. But, but then I get to thinking about Moses and Elijah, two, two interesting people in history. Moses, you know, we believe he died because I think the New Testament in Judah somewhere talks about how the archangel Michael uh, had a dispute with the devil over Moses' body, so they don't really know you know, we don't really know what happened with his body. We know he went up and he died and that was it. Uh, Elijah, he never did die, did he? Remember, he went up to heaven in a chariot of fire and a whirlwind and off he went. And you might say, well, have we ever heard from him again? And that's a good question. Because if you think about it, remember when Jesus was on the mountain and he was transfigured? How many people were there? Peter... James and John, who wrote Revelation. You remember that story in the Gospels? Uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and they went up on a mountain, and while they were there, he transfigured his, he, he, he just transfigured in front of them. And that was the moment we always talk about this, right? When Peter was like, and he felt like somebody had to say something. Well, 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 well God, it's good for us to be here. You know, why don't we build three tabernacles? One for you and Moses and Elijah. And that's the story where we kind of chuckle because God from heaven basically said, hush, right? (laughs) But uh, uh, Moses and Elijah appeared there. And, you know, there's scholars that say what was going on there. Well, I think it represented the fact that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets Maybe they were also there to encourage him. I'm not sure. But the point is that from their time in Old Testament history to now New Testament history, they have appeared. They were only seen by three other than Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And so perhaps perhaps Moses and Elijah are going to appear at some point in the future. 
Now, here's maybe a weakness against that view. If you read this again uh, carefully, it says that these two witnesses are going to have authority to prophesy. Okay, And it says in verse 6, they have authority to close up the sky so it doesn't rain during the days of the prophecy. And they also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. It says they, not this one does this and that one does that. It says they, which implies that they both can do what Elijah did and they both can do what Moses did. Does that make sense? And so for that reason, um, I agree with Adrian Rogers on this. Adrian Rogers says, I believe these two prophets or witnesses will come in the spirit of Elijah and Moses. Instead of these two witnesses literally being Elijah and Moses, I believe, I agree with him, that they will come in the spirit of. And you might say, well, that's kind of weird. Has that ever happened before? Well, I can give you one example of where, yes, that has. If you look in Luke chapter 1, as Luke chapter 1 is describing... um, John the Baptist and the kind of person he'll be and the life he will live, it says in Luke 1.16, he, this is referring to John the Baptist, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord God and he will go before him, referring to the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah. And if you remember at one point, Jesus had a discussion with his disciples and he says for those that can accept it, He was the Elijah to come, referring to John the Baptist. And so, yes, God has used someone in the past, like John the Baptist, who has come in the spirit of Elijah. And so, whoever these two witnesses are, like I said, it gives you all kinds of descriptions, but it doesn't just come out and say their names are blank and blank. You know, it just doesn't say that. And because it doesn't say that, I don't feel like I've got license or liberty to say that either. I can just point you to where the the two main thoughts are. The two main thoughts are they're either going to be somebody biblically from from the past, like uh, Moses and Elijah, or they're going to be someone in the future that comes in the spirit of Moses and Elijah, or perhaps if you take the more symbolic approach, perhaps... You know, it represents believers today that we have authority to, to, to witness for Christ and all of these other things. So it's definitely interesting stuff when you think about it. Um, I, uh, I'll throw this in because we've been collecting for our Lottie Moon Christmas offering uh, this month. Lottie Moon once said, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal till my work is done. And that's exactly what these two witnesses are. They, uh, no one can touch them, no one can stop them until their work is done. They have authority to prophesy for 1260 days. They're dressed in sackcloth, which, which indicates humility, but also perhaps a message of repentance. Um, They are these two olive trees and lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. In other words, He is with them. 
And if anybody wants to harm them, fire comes out and consumes them. And they, uh, they have the authority to close up the sky. And they have uh, power over the water and, you know, plagues. So very uh, much do they have authority to do what God has enabled them to do. So four things we should know as a witness of Christ. God's plan moves forward despite opposition. We have God's promise to complete the mission. And number three, we can expect persecution and even death for telling the truth. Well, look what happens there in verse 7. When they, referring to these two witnesses, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the people, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and sing gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. Yeah, let me stop there for a minute. Um, Jim Elliott, who also was a missionary who became a martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ, he wrote in a letter to his parents, Remember you are immortal until your work is done, but don't let the sands of time get into the eyes of your vision to reach those who still sit in darkness. They simply must hear. In other words, we're called to simply tell them the good news. Share with them the gospel. Here in this part of the story, the beast comes up from out of the abyss to make war with them, to conquer them, and to kill them. This is the first of 36 references to the beast in Revelation. In other words, we're going to hear a whole lot more about the beast moving forward. But this is his first appearance on the scene, if you will. Uh, more details about the beast are in chapters 13 of Revelation and chapter 17. You'll find a lot, and we'll get there when the time comes. Uh, many believe this is the one that John refers to in his writing as the Antichrist. And Paul would say the man of sin or the lawless one. What's interesting to me, and I will highlight this just to show you how this was a struggle for me to say, is it literal? Is it symbolic? You know, do you read it for face value? Is there more meaning than, is there more meaning than meets the eye? Uh, for instance, there in verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city. And then it says, which is figuratively, and that clearly says, hey, what I'm saying to you is symbolic, okay? Which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Okay, we know where the Lord was crucified. Jerusalem, right? So you got Jerusalem, even though it's not mentioned by name, not explicitly, it's just a clue where the Lord was crucified. That's Jerusalem. Then you've got figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. And then you've got the great city. And your, their question is, what is the great city? And notice that when we were officially reading this passage there in, in uh, 
uh, this passage, Revelation 11, in verse 2, we're reading about the temple, and it's in the holy city, verse 2. So we go, we're talking about a city in this passage, but in verse 2, it's called the holy city, okay? And we know that that's consistent throughout the Bible that refers to Jerusalem. However, then we get here in verse 8, the great city. And this is where it's kind of confusing to me because many times in the Bible you'll see the term the great city. Now, to eliminate a lot of confusion, I'll just say that before they went into the promised land, as they were getting a map of what that looked like, they talked about a lot of great cities that were in the land God was calling them to you know, possess. Well, let's take those off the table. When you take those off the table, the great city almost exclusively in the Old Testament refers to Nineveh, the Assyrians, which was one of the big enemies of the uh, Israelites in the Old Testament. Uh, what may come to mind is Jonah as he's called by God to go to that great city, Nineveh, and he didn't want to, you know, he, he just didn't want to. Uh, only once, and this is the only time you'll find it in the Old Testament, only once is the great city referred to Jerusalem. And when you find it, and I'll tell you where it is, it's not flattering. It's, it's not pretty. It's Jeremiah 22, verse 8 and 9. And uh, we'll pull that up there on the, on the board. Look at what it says in Jeremiah 22, verse 8. Many nations will pass by this city and ask one another, why did the Lord do such a thing to this great city? And if you read that passage in its context, it's talking about Jerusalem, okay? And it's the only time in the Old Testament that great city actually refers to Jerusalem. Look what happens next. The question is asked. People are walking by. Why did the Lord do such a great thing or such a thing to this great city? And it says they will answer because they, they abandoned the covenant of the Lord their God and bowed in worship to other gods and served them. So in other words, the one time Jerusalem is mentioned as a great city in the Old Testament, they're being condemned for idolatry. Now you go back and you read Revelation, and it says their dead bodies lie in the main street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Clearly, if this is Jerusalem, things aren't the way they should be. Now, hold with me. I'm going to give you one more curveball, and then I'll try to make sense of all this. In the New Testament, in the New Testament, the only time you see the phrase, the great city, is in Revelation. And the other seven or eight times that the great city is mentioned in Revelation, they all refer to Babylon. Okay? So that's why, that's why it's kind of frustrating as you're reading chapter 11. There's enough in here that's literal. There's enough that's symbolic. It's really hard to kind of shake it all out and say, what are, we, what are we dealing with here? So here is a great city. Um, when you try to put yourself in first century as a believer in the first century, and you know the Bible is still being written, you might say, and you think about the great city, 
I would almost say that you could argue that the original hearers of, of John's letter of Revelation might even think the great city is Rome. Okay, And, and here, here's a thought for that too. The Jews, they respected the dead. And when people died, they buried them. They took care of the body. Uh, many of them, you know, not the Sadducees, but many of them believed in the resurrection of the body. They took care of the body. They, they, they had proper, proper burial methods of the body. I mean, if you think about uh, the, the women and the men that, uh, that were involved when Jesus died, you know, Nicodemus and, um, and uh, someone else got the body of Jesus. And the women had all of these spices, right? And they made sure that his body was prepared for a proper burial. The idea, if you, uh, if you look at what happened to these two witnesses, their dead bodies lie in the street for three and a half days. And it says that all of these people, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their bodies to be put in a tomb. The indignity of it all, right? If, John, if John's listeners were hearing that, they would immediately think Rome being the great city. Why? Because of all those emperors that killed Christians, put them on crosses, put them on display, made sport of them, and then kept them up there for a while to send the message to everybody else. Does that make sense? And so that's why there's really some mixed signals here on what is this great city? Is it Babylon? Is it Rome? Is it Jerusalem? I still think it's Jerusalem. I, I think that. But I think there's so many um, red flags being thrown right now that it wants you to understand this is not the Jerusalem you think, you're thinking of. This great city is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. Now, what was Sodom known for? Immorality. What was Egypt known for? Uh, they, Israel was slaves in Egypt. They were oppressed. They were persecuted. Okay? So, so that makes sense. How could these two witnesses that had authority to prophesy for so many days and nobody could harm them because of the fire coming out of their mouth and they can close up the sky so it don't rain. They can turn the water to blood. They can, uh, the, you know, all these plagues can come. I mean, they have power and authority to do what they're doing. How in the world could this happen? Well, because this great city is overrun with immorality and with oppression and persecution and opposition like a Sodom and an Egypt. And it's where the Lord was crucified. And remember what Jesus said, if they hated if they hate you, remember they hated me first. A servant's not above his master. And so all of this comes into play. And then when you read a passage like this with 21st century eyes, you know, the year 2021, 20, uh, you're looking at uh, this and it says in verse 9 that some of the people, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days before television... Before the internet, if we took that out of our reference point, previous generations would read this and say, how in the world are all kinds of people all over the world going to be able to view this when they only have three and a half days? 
But now you and I know through the wonders of technology, that can happen in a New York minute, can't it? So that comes into play as you read it from you know, our modern perspective. And it says there in verse 10 that those who live on the earth, and remember that's a, euph- a euphemism, a little saying in Revelation when it talks about the earth dwellers or those who live on the earth, that's kind of a code phrase for unbelievers, okay? Unbelievers. And so those that uh, live on the earth, those that don't believe, they will gloat over these two witnesses and they'll celebrate and they'll send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. And, you know, other than birthdays and Christmas, I can't think of a time when people give gifts to each other, right? But apparently um, they're so happy that these uh, witnesses can no longer speak that they're celebrating and they're giving gifts to each other. And it says that these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Now, it's interesting that it says um, torment. Certainly, your imagination could visualize it. I mean, if you have two witnesses and somebody doesn't like what they have to say, so they try to censor them uh, and, you know, fire comes out of their mouth or they can not let it rain or they can turn the water to blood or whatever... Uh, I could see where that could be tormenting, but I tend to think more of in Acts when Paul was talking to Felix and he was talking to him about uh, sin, righteousness, and judgment, and it made Felix tremble. Uh, I, I tend to think that the torment was that of the conscience. Uh, they didn't want to hear it. It was convicting. It was confrontational. And they didn't like it. They didn't want to hear it. And so when it was finally gone, whoo, oh, isn't it great? Liberation. That's kind of the, the way I sense this as we, as we read it. Um, the four things, again, that we should know as a witness, we've looked at three of them. God's plan moves forward despite opposition. He, he measures His people. He knows those who are His. And we have God's promise to complete the mission. We know that He'll be with us even to the end of the age. And we can expect persecution and even death for telling the truth. And isn't that true? And then number four, and this one is sweet, God will vindicate His servants. God will vindicate His servants. The rest of the story in verse 11, but after three and a half days, The breath of life from God entered them, these two witnesses, that is, and they stood on their feet. And see, that's why I tend to think that these are two actual people, per se. Um, uh, Great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. And at that moment, Four things happen. Look at what happens here. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. That's one. A tenth of the city fell. That's two. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. That's three. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And that's four. And then it says, the second woe has passed. Take note, the third woe is coming soon. Wow. Remember the bird in the sky that said there was three woes coming? Well, this is the second woe 
there's still one more woe. Uh, obviously, a lot is going on here. You see the, um, the earthquake, and I believe an earthquake is involved um, later on in, in some of the bowl judgments. So it just feels like all of this is getting us toward, toward the end. Uh, then you see a tenth of the city fail. Um, and then you see 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Now again, numbers in Revelation particularly, uh, numbers in prophecy, they really are symbolic. Uh, as I was studying that, I was like, 7,000, that sounds familiar. 7,000, that does sound familiar. You know why it sounds familiar? Do you remember Elijah? Uh, again, let's, let's sort of tie some, some loose ends here. We've already talked about Elijah because, uh, because these two witnesses, they, uh, they remind us of Elijah because they have the authority to close up the sky so it doesn't rain. And remember, Elijah was the prophet in the Old Testament that was known for praying that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years, and it didn't. And then he prayed, and it did right? And remember, he confronted Israel. He said, how long will you waver between two opinions? And he had a showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, and they built an altar, and he built an altar, and he says, may the God who answers by fire, that's the God we'll worship. And you, you know the story. They, they did everything they could think of, and when the time came, nothing happened. And about the time of the evening sacrifice, uh, Elijah does everything that God told him to do. And when he prays, wham, the fire falls, and there you go. Now that story has significance in a lot of ways because, the, I guess I've saved the best for last, because when you look at this again, Revelation 11, verse 5, if anybody wants to harm these two witnesses, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies, and that's how they can be he uh, killed. Uh, again, Elijah, remember there was a commander one time, uh, a king that sent his commander of men to go get Elijah and bring him. And, uh, and when they went to Elijah, he says, if I'm a man of God, fire from heaven's going to fall. And fire from heaven fell and consumed those men. And then he sent another commander with his men. And guess what? It happened again. By the time the third commander showed up, he said, uh... Uh, <laughs> he kind of took a different approach, right? Uh, you can look that up about Elijah. Now, here's why that's interesting. Because when we get to the beast in another chapter or two here in Revelation, he's going to have fire fall from heaven, and it's going to deceive a lot of people. Uh, just remember that God is the original. Dev the devil is always the counterfeit, okay? But, but here's where I was going with that. I brought up Elijah for another reason, the Mount Carmel story. You know, once Queen Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you, he, he runs for the hills, right? Finally, he ends up at the mountain where, where God is. And he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he says, Lord, they killed all your prophets, and I'm the only one left. And what did God say? There are... <clears throat> 7,000 people that still have not bowed the knee to Baal. How many? 7,000. It's in the Old Testament. 
It's also mentioned again in the book of Romans, I believe chapter 11, but I'd have to verify that. So what's cool here is it's almost like God flips the script. In Elijah's day, there were 7,000 people that were faithful no matter what, and yet here when the judgment begins to fall, there are initial 7,000 people killed in the earthquake, okay? And the survivors are terrified, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. And like I said, I've studied this so much that it's almost confusing because you can read commentaries, and you got two views on, on the response here of the survivors. It says they were terrified, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. Now... That means one of two things. Either they really got right with God and they're giving Him glory, or they're terrified and they recognize He's God, but that doesn't mean their heart has changed. See what I mean? And uh, I'll, let you, uh, I'll let you make your own judgment on that. Two ways of looking at it. So, I'm almost done. Let me just sort of leave you with some good stuff to think on. The lessons we can learn from this, the, the stuff that's obvious that we need to be reminded of, is that God's people are protected spiritually. I think that's what the measuring, the temple, the altar, counting the worshipers, I believe that's what that's about. We're protected spiritually. God knows those who are His. But we're still vulnerable to persecution. You know, the two witnesses, they were untouchable, while they were doing what God had called them to do. But when that work was complete, they were now vulnerable and the enemy was permitted to, to persecute them and ultimately kill them. We, as God's people, are called to speak the truth. And the world will often react with hostility to our witness. But God has promised to raise us even from the dead so that even what looks like ultimate defeat in the end, is ultimate victory. And that's where I want to leave it with you. So tonight, my challenge is this. Will you be a faithful witness for Jesus Christ? Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, there's so much that we don't know. There's so much we don't understand. But Lord, help us to be faithful and obedient to what we know. And Lord, may we be faithful to you, no matter the cost, no matter the consequence. Lord, may we be a faithful witness so that one day we can stand before you and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, be with us as we leave this place. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.